Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Bedratty. It's cold in the Midwest, and uh, there's nothing better for me than staying warm with the Russell Quarter Zip. This piece is like your favorite hoodie. You can make it dressed up as much as you want, like you could do business casual with it. You could wear it on the golf course, stay warm on a chilly morning or you know brisk day, or you can just lounge on the uh, on the couch watching you know golf on Sunday afternoon, like your favorite hoodie. So you can get the Russell Quarter Zip in our pro shop at thefriedegg.com or from Bedratty directly at www.bedratty.com. All right, today's episode is with a uh, legendary golf course designer, Bill Coor. So Bill and I talked in Scottsdale. Uh, we talked about a number of topics, including his work at the Sheep Ranch, uh, a little bit about Pete Dye, and much more. So without further ado, here is Bill Coor. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. So if you if you uh, if you could go and say like erase time, there's this movie uh, yesterday, the Beatles movie. I don't know if you've seen I've it. I've seen it. Yeah, seen you know, it. so like how they forget about the Beatles, right? And then society just like nobody has any clue. And we're talking golf here. If you could, if society could wake up one day and have no clue this ever existed, you if one of these things would it be the rangefinder, like the yardage gun? The um, the big-headed drivers or the lob wedge? Which one would you get rid of? Oh, gee. <laughs> I thought you were going to ask something about golf courses. <laughs> which one of those three? Uh, and this is I, from, from a design perspective. Yeah, well, I, I think the range finder. Yeah. I think I would uh, probably eliminate that because it, at least... I am now, <laughs> I am now, such a dinosaur and old enough that um, uh, I remember easily before rangefinders, and I thought it was a fascinating part of golf trying to make distance judgments by sight, and and often by feel. And yes, I actually remember when we played golf, uh, even without yardage books. I guess you know Dean Beeman, I think, was the first or one of. No, Bill, no. Phil Rogers, I think, was the first professional who did the yardage books, and Jack Nicholas got that from him. And I think maybe Dean Beeman was doing it at the same time. Nicholas, of course, being the one who's the most well known for doing it when they made their own yardage books. But uh, I even remember prior to that, it was uh, judging distances was a, really a, a, an integral part of golf. Yeah, and then also the the deception of bunkers and stuff that has been lost a little bit where you can just shoot the top edge of a bunker. Well, without question. I mean, Ben and I um, and the guys that we work with and lots of other folks who are in this profession too still are, are very uh, um, enamored of the bunkers that are set 
short the, the green surfaces but appear to be right at the green surfaces. Generally, if you can get the top line of a bunker, even if it's 30, 40 yards short of the green, if you can get the top line of the bunker to match the same visual line of sight into the front edge of the green, that bunker will appear to be right at the front of the green. And as you, as you say, in, in days gone by, when you use visual judgment, that foreshortened everything. It made the green look closer than it really was because you didn't see that ground that was between the bunker and the putting surface, and your mind would automatically tell you it's not, you know, say it's 175 yards. It might look like it's a 150 145, something like that. So even if you knew the ground was there, your mind was telling you something different. Now today, with the accuracy and the, the detail of the yardage finders, the range finders, uh, I think we can all overcome what our, what our sight impressions are just because we know the mathematics behind the numbers. And okay, it may look like 150, but I know it's 175. So with that is using the horizon lines to match for that deception. In, in terms of deception, how are there other ways you, that you can deceive players with visual tricks, whether it be with features or um, different, you know, do you have different tricks where you can maybe appear, make bunkers appear to look further away or closer than they are? Well, they obviously scale uh, is is one of them. <laughs> Anything that's the bigger it is, the closer it's going to look to you. Uh, but uh, angles, you can use angles that 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 seem to set up certain ways you want to play. Uh, we're we're still pretty much fond of the types that help you. In other words, if if um, if the ideal shot going into the green is right to left, if you can set the bunkering in such a way that it visually, that it, it seems appealing to play a right to left shot, that's, that's, a, that's a type of bunkering, I guess you might say, is, is positive and is, is reinforcing. Now you can do it the other way and set up bunkering with angles that make it appear you want to hit a shot a certain way when in fact you want to hit the exact opposite shape of shot. That's, uh, I think, yeah, deception is, is interesting. And then, you know, with, with those visual, those angles, it's, oh, this shot calls for right to left. Like you can just see it in there with those, the way, it's a good point about those. So what do you got a lot of new projects? What have you been working on since since we last talked? Well, it's been a long time, Andy, since we but talked. I gosh, I think the last time we talked it was at Sand Valley. So um, it was colder. Oh God, I was so grateful to you <laughs> that day. I was freezing out there, absolutely freezing. And when you offered the chance to come inside and sit and talk to you. I remember you said something uh, uh, like, well, Bill, it won't take very much of your time. And I made some response that I recall, like, Andy, I'll stand here as long as you want, as long as we can stay in this warm room and somebody will bring me some hot chocolate. So we, we sat there quite a while. Yeah, yeah. And, and I've, I've gotten a lot better at producing audio. So that's good for the listeners. Um, yeah. So I guess your big, big opening this year is uh, Sheep Ranch. And um, 
I guess to kick things off, the you know what everybody's going to be talking about is the decision not to have the traditional sand bunkers, so Sheep Ranch at Bandon Dunes. Um, what went into that decision? Wind. <laughs> Wind primarily, as uh, as you would walk on the site, and it uh, it like uh, the old McDonald site at Bandon, or very likely the uh, most exposed to the wind and sheep ranch possibly even more so than old mcdonald's so uh as as we would walk the site and study it thinking about routing of holes and how how golf could be played out there and the emphasis being on played not just photographed uh, we just realized that wind was going to be such a factor that uh we thought, well, okay, bunkers would be extraordinarily beautiful. They could be off the chart spectacular at the sheep ranch, but it's not a sandy site, Andy. It's a, you know it doesn't have dunes like some of the other courses abandoned. It's basically a red shot clay type on cliffs and um, spectacular landforms and, and and setting for golf, but not a sandy site. And if we put, if we created artificial formal type bunkers, we just felt like the maintenance of those was going to be a nightmare with the wind constantly whipping the sand out, trying to water the bunkers to keep the sand in. And the more we we thought about this and we thought, you know, Ben and I talked some, but uh, we've remembered an old photograph that was in Robert Hunter's book, The Lynx. And it was an old black and white photograph and... Uh, it, it it had a caption underneath something to the effect of one day there will be a site with undulations good enough that um, bunkers will be unnecessary. And we just thought about if we're ever going to do a golf course with no formal sand bunkers, maybe this is the place. The contours are good enough at the sheep ranch. The the natural ones, the ones that had been manipulated through the years with, you know, by by equipment and men. But you put the, all those contours together, they were so good for golf in their just their basic presentation. We thought this is probably the site that we will just allow the contours that exist and the ones that, that we will create to determine the golf without any formal bunkers. So great contours, and then you also get that that wind that you talked about, which, you know, that added external factor that you probably are going to challenge players enough with those two, right? Uh, I think so, Andy. I think we just felt like the wind and the the fantastic contours would would take care of all the interest for golf and and any – you know, type of defenses the course needed because those those would be there through the contouring on the ground and um, and and through the wind. Now that doesn't mean people say, "Oh, you, you're not you have no bunkers at all." Andy, there's some we created some scalloped out areas and some hollows and things, and that probably will appear to be a bunkers that had been abandoned you know, for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years um, just because of the their shapes and landforms and the fact that they collect balls. But um, quite frankly, we decided we're, we, will, we will do these and we'll make them more like just wispy, fescue-type um, areas, um, 
abandoned bunker type things with some scrapes of sand in them, but just would not be any formal bunkers. How do you think those areas will play differently for for players than a traditional bunker? Well, I, I think for the you know for the average to higher handicapper, they're certainly going to be easier because. You know, we all know how those of us who are handicaps are up there, so to speak, uh, more often than not struggle in bunkers, and particularly in bunkers that are severely uh, impacted by wind as well. And uh, I think in this case, people, you know, they'll see their ball lying there, maybe in the taller, wispy fescue, but generally that abandoned, that's very thin. So I think they're just going to feel more comfortable. There's my ball. I can hit it. I'm going to go. I've got a chance at this. And yet, perhaps for the very best players that play, they're going to find themselves in some of these scalloped out areas or, or what might have been old bunkers, um, from at least from a perception standpoint. But they might prefer to, to actually be in sand where they could play their type of of sand shot and spin the ball enough to get close to the hole. Yeah, for for the really best players, sand is a very predictable place to be. It, it's interesting, Andy. I, I remember um, I, I learned something so interesting. We were working at Shinnecock Hills and uh, Mike Davis and uh, you know the executive director of the USGA and and. I remember we were out there walking, and um, we were talking about potential situations where a hole, say it like number 15 or um, even number 13, could be set up in such a way that the players could drive the, the players in the U.S. Open could drive the ball to the green under certain circumstances. And... Uh, I remember thinking uh, like the 15th hole uh, with just surrounded by bunkers. And I remember talking to Mike. I said, Mike, why would anybody ever try to do this? You know, to to do this, they, they almost cannot get a ball on this green, you know, from the tee because it's surrounded by bunkers. And I remember Mike Stenner saying, Bill, probably what they would like more than anything is to be in one of these bunkers right here to have a perfect lie in the bunker for these players of that skill level, it's such a predictable shot that they would much rather be there than off in the rough someplace or perhaps even in the fairway with a more with an awkward angle or lie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, you know, there's – because that sand, if you hit it a little fat, it runs a little bit more. If you yeah. hit it a little thin, it, it grabs a little bit yeah. more. And, and there's just such a, you know yeah. – for that high-level player, you look at some of the percentages these guys get up and down from the sand over the course of a season, and you're like, they get up and down that that often? It's, it's really unbelievable. It is. It's, it's amazing. And the consistency now for the tournament courses, the consistency of the bunkers, the, the conditioning of the bunkers um, is so um, perfect. And it's so again consistent that um the players are you know it's it's certainly the bunkers are not the hazards they were when uh when being introduced into golf all those years ago so 
with um with the routing there at the sheep ranch it's it's a smaller site i believe right you know it is acreage um you had to be very clever and like what you said you know taking advantage for the golf how did you guys kind of come up with that and is it did you find it more difficult with there being golf holes out there already did you have to almost unsee golf holes uh, without question, Andy. I mean, because Tom Doak and Jim Urbina uh, had had built greens out there. Uh, they there were a, a very few, I guess you would say, tee placements. Uh, but they had built. Uh, let's see. I think it was thirteen, I believe, uh, greens out there that that could be played from different angles and. Um, sort of the cross-country type golf that Sheep Ranch had been through its existence. And um, I just remember the first times going out there when there were still flag sticks in those greens and um, and looking at it, and it's hard not to your eye to be drawn to those. And uh, it actually became a lot easier when uh, we just asked them to take the flag sticks out and you'd walk out. Because, you know, the greens, it wasn't a course that was highly maintained. So it wasn't like the greens just stood out like beacons, you know, themselves in, in the rest of the, the uh, type of vegetation and, and landforms and colorization of the vegetation. So once the flag sticks were gone, it was a little easier to, to start to visualize that site as more natural type contours or contours highly conducive to golf without being predisposed to think we need to play there. We need to play there or we need to play there. Mm -hmm. In terms of the small site, um, what type of challenges did it present? And, you know, what were the solutions that you guys kind of figured out that you hacked around with that, you know, maybe some things that you struggled through before finding a solution? Well, I think the biggest solution was getting 18 holes on it. <laughs> I mean, the biggest challenge, not solution. Um, but the um, it, it that and, and the fact that uh, Phil Friedman and Mike Kaiser, the owners of the Sheep Ranch, um, they would very uh, good-naturedly, but at the same time, I knew seriously, remind us uh, regularly that uh, uh, had some of the most spectacular coastline of all the the resort at Bandon, and how could we use every linear foot of it and uh, in some way in the golf and uh, needs to say that was a bit of a, a challenge but um, uh, so that was that's where we started we started saying okay yes it's a small site how do we best utilize the coastline here and with holes that that play Certainly alongside it, but if you if you did that repetitively, you weren't going to get very many holes on the ocean. So we tried to to come up with a routing that uh, you could literally play from promontories over the ocean to fairways, other holes more or less uh, alongside the ocean, but then holes that went to greens right on the ocean, and then holes that played from tees right on the ocean more inland. So trying to utilize it in different in different ways and make that the, uh, the certainly the ocean holes the foundation of the golf course but then how do you work inland from there and fit the puzzle pieces together i think the big um, 
there was certainly a lot of concern about the fact that the holes, because of the size of the site, the holes were going to have to be in reasonably close proximity to one another. And then given the wind uh, influence that, you know, we, we, we certainly had some concerns about balls that might travel from one golf hole to another. And I think, and time will only tell how well this worked, but our solution to that was to try in several instances cluster teeing grounds together. Uh, for example, the second and the 18th tees are right together. They play at different angles in different directions, but the, the teeing grounds themselves are very close together. That's the case on 2 and 18, it's the case on uh, 5 and 15, it's the case on 8 and 10. By doing that, getting the team, getting two team grounds in a, in a small area and then playing at, at angles that radiated away uh, at different angles from those team grounds, it enabled us to make the fairways wider. So like a piece of pie, I guess, or a piece of pizza. If you play from the tip, out to the wide part. You can put two tips together and the, the pizza edge is much wider and the, and the pieces of the pizza are much wider when you get away from the tip. So that was in essence what we did. We clustered some teeing grounds in order to make the fairways, the areas where you're going to actually be hitting a golf ball and playing golf wider. And that gave us, that seemed to give us more room to work to get the the eighteen hole routing in there, you're you're also working on Terry's second course, which is oceanfront. When you're <laughs> when you're working on a big body of water, and you're routing, oftentimes you see with water the ground a little bit back of the water is the best ground for golf because of just the way the you know the ecological, the way ground settles, you know, where it used to be wider or bigger. How big of a challenge is it to not just, you know, it, to figure out the best way to use the waterfront, but also, you know, have those holes inland really, you know, it, I guess more so, is it frustrating sometimes where you might think like some of the best holes are the, the least talked about because they aren't on the ocean? Oh, I think so, Andy. I mean, I, I can tell you a prime example of that that we're just now beginning to work with is uh, with the, the Cabot Lynx folks with their new project down in St. Lucia on this super spectacular site. Oh, my gosh, it must be the, the most visually spectacular of any site we've, we've worked with. It was just like quite a lot, actually. And uh, But... Um, the holes right on the cliffs on the ocean and we're able like at the sheep ranch to work right to the edge so the holes that are right on the edge of the ocean at cabot st lucia will be the ones that will without question be the most talked about because they are so visually stunning and dramatic but the holes that are actually a bit more inland on some on ground that's very very interesting for golf even though it's not on the ocean um I, I think they're going to. Um, I think they're going to hold their own in terms of golf interest. Uh, Dave Axlin, who's worked with us for so many years and at so many places, and he and I were just there, and 
I remember this after I'd walked Dave through the 18 hole routing twice. He, I remember he looked at me there a few days ago and just said, Bill, I know everybody's going to talk about the ocean holes, but he said, I'm not so sure the best holes aren't the inland ones. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I find myself when I think about like my mo like my favorite golf holes, like, you know, obviously ocean holes or, or if they're on the lake are stunning, but then you think about that contour that comes, you know, the contour of a hole is, is in the, in the slopes, like the eighth hole at Prairie Dunes is one that always just jumps to the top of my mind. And it's, it's like, if you put that hole on a course with an ocean, nobody would ever take pictures of that hole. And, (laughs) and it is one of the most, you know, intriguing holes in the world in my mind. Yeah. Well, I mean, Prairie Dunes in and of itself is a, is a, a marvelous example of extraordinary golf that you just expect the ocean to be over the next dune and it's never quite there. And uh, so if you can build holes, it is a challenge. If you have a a seaside site, um, uh, it is a challenge to try to build holes that either play away from the ocean or that play inland you know, in, in different directions, but it, the ones that are not looking directly at the sea, it's a challenge to, to make those have enough inherent interest and appeal to golfers that they can be memorable as well. Yeah, and and you've got, like as you alluded to with, you know, Mike Kaiser and Phil Friedman um, with the, you know, they want to use that oceanfront yeah, land yeah. if they have it because yeah. that's, you know, to the you know, that's the... You know, what they know the retail golfer is going to just soak in and everything. And, and sometimes it, I, I just could imagine that's, that's a tricky thing to deal yeah. with. Yeah. Well, and for good reason. Yeah. I mean, they've been looking at that land. Now, Phil Friedman, it was his sanctuary. He was like his and his family's personal sanctuary out there to, to go play golf and have friends go out and play, you know, the sheep ranch and, and so he's he's been so personally um, connected to that site for nearly 20 years, and and of course Mike as well too, being co-owner with Phil of the of the site. So it's understandable why they wanted uh, uh, the holes on the ocean. I, I'm <laughs> I'm reminded of Mike Kaiser when we were about to start what became Cabot Cliffs. Because I remember Mike asking me there before we started, he said, Bill, can you lay out a course with six par threes? Mike loves par three holes. And, but my first response I remember to Mike was, and I suppose you want them all to be facing the ocean. And he goes, well, of course. And it was, uh, it was kind of an inside joke yeah. for us. But yeah, there was a degree of seriousness about it. You know, that he said people never tire of looking at the sea and and that's that's true so to your point to get them engaged and and appreciate holes that don't look right at the sea is um is is part of what uh, if you can pull that off then generally speaking your course if you're on a site by the ocean your course is going to be pretty darn good i i really i wonder what you'd have to do to have like the most photographed hole of a course on the ocean be a hole that isn't on the ocean. I don't know if it'd be possible. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Andy. It, uh, uh, 
I, I don't know. We, we, uh, all I know is that we, between working at the sheep ranch, now just beginning at Cabot St. Lucia on this extraordinarily spectacular site by the ocean and the cliffs, and then about to start down at, it's going to be called Tiare Links, down at Tahiti in New Zealand, in the dunes next to the ocean. Ah, uh, I don't know. We're going to have, we're, everybody's going to say, oh, you guys, it's unbelievable. How in the world did you get those? Those are some best sites in the world kind of stuff. And uh, yes, that's true. But there is that challenge that you brought up. <laughs> how, do we, how do we make the entire golf course measure up? Because the only way you're going to have every hole in the ocean is you're going to have to helicopter people back, I guess, after they play. They just play out down the ocean for mi you know, miles, and then you, t you bring them back. But you're going to have to have some inland holes. So speaking of that, what's, your, what's maybe the, your favorite hole that you've built at any course that almost nobody or nobody's brought up to you as like, you know, to ask you a question about a certain hole. I'm sure people ask you about holes all the time. So what's a hole that you love, but nobody's ever talked to you really about it? Um, gee, Andy, I don't know that I've ever given that thought. Um, I could probably go course by course and think of you know, a hole or something. I mean, I can I can quickly, for example, think of a hole like at Cabot Cliffs, um, the uh, the 13th hole, which plays straight away from the ocean, and goes goes there and then a, a, a sort of a semi punch bowl type green set in behind a natural hill. It was there, and and you never hear anything about it. And yet Ben and I both love that hole. I mean, we just thought it was just the neatest natural landform to use to play golf but it comes after playing holes in the ocean and it's and it precedes that stretch of holes that finishes on the ocean so it's just kind of lost in the conversation yeah I, garrett our, our managing editor and i always talk about publishing a piece about you know we want to put together what we consider the least talked about holes like that are really brilliant like one we always talk about is 17 at pasta tiempo yeah. people are like oh that back nine's so great except for 17 and it's like that's a pretty cool hole isn't it yeah. you know yeah. well it's, it's like the 18th hole at cypress point yeah i mean that the poor thing it just gets maligned all the time and i guess it was, maybe it was jimmy demerit who said you know, all those years ago, it's the best 17-hole course in the world. Well, of course, that type of stuff sticks. And people, you just hear people say, oh, it's just not good. It's this, it's that. It's, uh, I, I find it to be an incredibly fascinating hole. It's set through those magnificent windswept, you know, cypress trees that McKenzie and Robert Hunter used and how they – how they routed the fairway through those within that serpentine fashion to, to take advantage not only the beauty of those trees, but the strategic value of them. To, you got to somewhere on that hole, you're going to have to play once, if not twice, really close to some trees to have any hope of being successful. And it's, you know, but it plays directly away from the ocean after, of course, 15, 16, 17. 
It's also uh, the, something I took away from it is that that hole asks you a distinctly different question than almost every other hole out there where you really have to be precise on that tee shot. And it's the last hole. And if you don't hit a really good shot there, like you were talking, playing close to the trees and hitting it the right yard, hitting it on a line. And, and I remember you talking about this with Trinity Forest hitting it on a line and their yardage as opposed to just a line or a yardage. And that hole really requires you to, to answer those two questions oh, to I, have a good second shot in. Absolutely. Plus the psychological aspect of you just played 15, 16, <laughs> 17 right on the ocean. You're coming off that I guess you'd say an emotional high and then you turn you're going directly inland you're going through these trees and if you're not careful you, you the mental side will waver right there even if you're so highly skilled you could just say you could play that hole most of the time you know successfully I think there's that mental aspect that comes into play as well yeah, you also, I always, when you play somewhere like Cypress Point, you have that sadness that the round's almost <laughs> exactly, over. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You got to contend yeah. with. Um, so you brought up Ben a couple times, obviously, your, uh, your design partner. I'm, I'm curious as, you know, you, everybody that listens to this pod, for the most part, works with somebody, and a lot of times in a business with a business partner. How does Ben look at, golf courses differently than you do um andy i i would say the the differences are are, are minor um it's one of the reasons i guess we've we've managed to enjoy doing this for 30 plus years our personalities and our philosophies regarding golf design are very very similar um ben i i would say could be even more conservative than I am when it comes to, um, you know, what what is considered to be the most interesting elements of golf. Uh, ben Ben is a very strong believer in in detail, in detail on greens. Like you know, we've talked about with Perry Maxwell with with the contouring of greens. We've, but um, I think the thing that I've learned so much from Ben through the years, but also the watching him focus on so much is that detail and how it influences play. And not just for play for those of us who are out there, you know, just playing for fun, but how it influences play for the very best players in the world. He's convinced that, and I am as well, um, primarily from working with Ben through all these years, but it's the small things that can make the biggest influence to the most elite players. The, um, the alignment of the axis of the green, how a green is, is positioned to open the entrance into the green into what, on what angle relative to the slope of the fairway, the width of the fairway, and the way the wind blows. And those things combined uh, can make all the difference in the world. If, you, if the axis of the green is, is aligned in such a way that you have a distinct advantage being in a certain spot in the fairway that aligns beautifully up the axis, straight up into the entrance of the green, then that begins to dictate thoughts of play. I know if I get to that spot, I have the best angle to play here. 
that's we've talked about that countless times you know through through the years so I, I would say it has to do more with that and the and the fact that a small contour what's the contour on a green that's that's three inches high or it's the tilt of the green tilt combined with the wind directions um, those are the things that uh, that he focuses on so much I remember him years ago talking about the little hump, the little mound that's in front of the fourth green at the old course at St. Andrews thing, just that infuriating little mound that kicks balls all sorts of ways. And, and uh, once you know, he, he was talking about even as one of the you know, most elite players, once you knew where the pin was and where that little mound was, it, it just influenced your thought all the way back to the tee. You didn't want to, if you could help it, you didn't want to be in a position where that little mound trying to play, especially trying to play a shot just at the front of the green where that thing could cause something really unpleasant to happen. Yeah, the, the contours and front of greens, and it's just a, especially on shots where you got to land it short, it's just... Uh, yeah. amazingly interesting one that jumps to mind uh, one of your courses is that 15th hole at sand uh sand valley with those two mounds right in front of that green and it's a, yeah. one of the longer par fours out there i i want to just put a launcher out there and watch shots kick <laughs> off them all day and that was a natural contour Andy. it really it really was it was what it was though it wasn't two mounds it was one sort of a hot dog or a hot dog bun sort of a ridge that went just at a slight angle in in just short of where the green was and we kept standing out there and looking we could do something here where you, you just carve a little trough right in the middle of the hot dog contour to encourage somebody, if you can get right there, if you can get a ball to come on the ground right through the little trough, it's going to feed right to that front pin, which is all, all but impossible to get to if you're trying to get it there aerial. Yeah, yeah, that I... That's something that sticks out. Something that sticks out to me about that golf course is is the green sites out there. There are just some magnificent ones set into dunes. You know, dramatic greens playing off of dune, where you're playing off of dunes, two greens, and then you know, combination of these subtle ones that are just lay of the ground. Um, talk a little bit about the natural features at Sand Valley that you guys had to work with. That was you know in terms of, you know, amongst your other great sites? Well, uh, Andy, I think, first of all, the greatest attribute of Sand Valley was in its name, sand. Uh, it's the sand site, so therefore drainage and earth moving and, and the ability to create interesting contours or discover naturally interesting contours was... was um, the opportunity for that was great there as it is on most sand sites, particularly sand sites that have been influenced by wind. Um, the The interesting thing to me personally there, which one of the things that I am very proud of about the course we did at Sand Valley was the fact that it was a tree plantation, as you well know. It had been, you know, planted in, in pine trees for timber pulpwood purposes and and um, once those trees were cleared it became apparent almost all the contours were valleys or ridges pretty big valleys or pretty big ridges 
And I remember early on, we were trying to lay out the golf course and go, how do we do this in such a way that these holes don't become so repetitive in their appearance or in the way they play? How can we find ways to lay the holes on here in such a way that the contours will be different from one hole to another. You don't just feel like you're playing a whole series of holes in the valley, a whole series of holes over a ridge to a low or something of that nature. Um, and I remember talking to Jim Craig, you know, who worked with us so much, and then Dave Axel and all the other guys that were there early on once it was cleared and you looked and you go, man, this, this, a lot of this ground just looks the same. How do we come up? with some concepts and some visual presentations that give each whole individual identity and, uh, and character. So I, I think that turned out okay, but uh, uh, it, was a, it was a concern. I, I find it to be endlessly compelling. And, and one of the things that I love most about it is the obvious the ad, advantage of the climate there where it's conducive to the the fescue and the speed at which it plays when you're building knowing that you're going to have a golf course that's going to play very firm and fast do you approach contour a little bit differently than say a place well, you know we're here in the desert or where you're where bermuda where you're dealing with the slower grass oh no question andy i mean it's uh, if you're well, certainly if you're by the sea someplace on sand and where it's windy, all all things change. I mean, you, you just simply can't go bunker greens, for example, for all aerial-type approach shots. You just can't do it. There are some days, um, particularly the days when holes play down a strong wind, that that would be impossible to play. So you you have to... In situations on sand with fescue where the ball rolls and depending on the direction of the wind, particularly if the wind varies, there are days that you just have to start to visualize shots that could land 50 yards different from what you just played the day before on the same hole. And in, in that regard, the contouring has to allow for that. And if you can create or take advantage of existing contours, that enable people to play those kind of shots to say, there's no way today downwind I can, I can hit this ball to the green in the air. It, it won't stop in the next county. I've got to land it far short of the green and use the ground to access the putting surface. Then that's when those contours become so not only interesting but valuable from the sense of how to most successfully play. Yeah, it's uh, it it makes the contour so much more of a, a yeah. factor. It's really an amazing thing. Um, one course you, you uh, people are going to be very familiar with. They just watched it on television. Kapalua, you just uh, re finished a refinement of uh, of the golf course. And one of the things, obviously, weather did not, and the the newness of turf did not conduce itself well to is regaining that speed that had been lost over the you know 30 years that it was you know in existence and that's a natural thing to have obviously have happen but what what did you kind of think after being out there watching golf for a week did you learn anything watching the pga tour players and you know what yeah and how you approach that process obviously with the tour in mind 
Yeah. No, we were pleased, Andy. Uh, ben and I were both there, as well as our wives. They probably <laughs> Julie were the most pleased. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> we don't go there without without Sue and Julie. That's for sure. <laughs> I remember I was, they were, they had called the Troon Golf Management people called one of would go out there this year, and uh, you know I didn't. I wasn't necessarily expecting that, but they wanted to know if we would do it. And my wife, Sue, said, yes. You know, it was, yes, we are going. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was, it's such a wonderful place to go. And you know, it certainly has so many special memories for Ben and Julie. They were married there, you know, That's years cool. ago. And, and so, and of course, for Ben and me to go back. And uh, But we were very pleased. You know, we walked the holes. We, we, we. We walked and studied all the greens now that they were obviously completely grown in and playing under tournament conditions. We were very pleased with the refinements we made to the greens. Ben, Ben numerous times referred to it as calming down some of the aspects of the greens, trying to create a few more pinnable areas, but also um, reduce some of the slope in the greens that uh, the today's green speeds uh, yeah I, I was going to ask how, how much have green speeds changed from you know the early 90s when you when you guys did that golf course oh i i actually don't know because i don't know that um i have any idea of what the green the stint meter yeah. so to speak you know readings were then um um it's significant. I, I wish I could answer the question. Mm-hmm. I don't know. They had the greens had gotten to the point. They had gotten smaller through the years, but they had also gotten to the point that the tour was concerned about the number of pinnable areas, and the tilts on the greens were severe enough uh, that it just felt like you couldn't use areas of the greens that you would that you would like to or were able to, you know, 28, 25 years ago. It's it's interesting because there's this you know constant talk of of especially when you get in tournament golf more so of the and really any kind of golf if the fair and unfair and the idea of you go to these classic golf courses and what you alluded to it in our first podcast of Wingfoot and how how close to the line it is mm-hmm. with being it's a it's a it's brilliant because of how close to the line it is and. And how difficult it is because that line is so razor thin. With with green speeds continuing to increase, do you th- do you feel like, in a sense, we're losing a little bit of of the magic of green contours? Well, if you if you put any uh, value in the sense that green should represent natural. Um, conditions or or contouring that you find in the in the world you know on on nice sites uh yeah because the green speeds uh you know to the point that uh the green speeds dictate the contours Mm -hmm. instead of so many of these courses that we all revere the contours dictated the green speeds I mean, we, we've kind of reversed this. The engines become the cart, and the carts become the engines. So, um, you know, those courses that you referred to, Wingfoot or Shinnecock or all these, these magnificent, Marion, these wonderful, wonderful places, 
they're right on the line. I mean, they are right on the line. They're still artistic. Oakmont, maybe the most of all, just unbelievably artistic putting surfaces. But to to be able to conduct, you know, championships today with the green speeds that are expected, um, it's it's difficult. It's and I think to an extent. It's cheapening the game because when you get them fast with the less slope, you're never inside of 10 feet. You're never putting a putt that you have to play outside the hole. Yeah. It, it's, you know, it's just a different perspective, I yeah, guess. It's true. It's, yeah. it's uh, um, you know, I, I don't know. Ben and I, Ben and I are prejudiced. We still, we still like uh, playing golf in, in, in arenas and on surfaces that that you just truly feel like could have been natural and a, and a gift of nature and not something that's been uh, created due to mathematics. Yeah, uh, that's a good way to put it. Um, so another golf course that the tour visits training for us, and obviously, you know, the, there's news that it was moving, and there's a lot of reasons that it's moving, not necessarily all, all the, because of the golf course, but because of infrastructure and, and many different things, you know, location. Um, do you feel like the players gave it a, a, a really gave it a chance to, to embrace it? Cause I, you know, leading up to the event, I remember, you know, there was a lot of negativity coming from players who hadn't even seen the golf course. Oh, Andy, I, I think the, I, I think they probably did. I think they were. I mean, certainly we we heard some of those same comments. But uh, you know, really, I think once they were there and experiencing the golf course, I, I I'm sure the players. We we know that some of them would not appreciate it. Um, anything that's different is is sometimes not easily accepted. And in, in all forms of life. But uh, um, we knew that there would be, you know, there, there would be some players uh, who would really like it and really appreciate it, and there'd be others who, who wouldn't. Um, but I don't, I don't personally think the, uh, the players were the driving yeah, issue no, there. Right. You know, it's interesting. You're, you just referred to Kapalua, the plantation course. Plantation course was very controversial when it first opened and the touring players played there because they had to use the ground. They had to use the wind. You didn't play point A to point B in the air. You could do it on some shots, but there were many you couldn't. And it was a different form of golf than most of those players were used to experiencing on the tour. And so it had its own years of people trying to come to grips with it. Do we accept this and do we like it? Do we not? Now, in more recent years, that's, you know, it's, it's, that seems to have all gone away. Everybody's so accepting of the plantation course. Yeah, sawgrass too. Yeah, and sawgrass too. I, I wish Trinity Forest would have been um, afforded a bit longer a period of time in which to prove itself because mother nature intervened yeah. so dramatically so far in the two years they played so wet and rain and horrible weather and of course that's pretty that's not uncommon in dallas in may and then 
But it was a tough marriage yeah. from the beginning, Andy. I mean, the tour, playing, playing a, a tournament that that was used to attracting very large crowds, and playing on a landfill that, uh, you know, was for obvious reasons of the cap could not, you know, water was not allowed to percolate downward to, to penetrate the landfill. So there were obvious issues that were going to come up if the weather turned bad and there was a lot of rain, particularly in the areas where the spectators, not so much where the players were, but where the spectators would be working, it was going to become soggy and messy and that. And the fact that, again, the landfill dictated there could no, be no trees. Yeah. You know, it's not. It's against the law to have plant trees on a landfill where the root structure fractures the cap of yeah. the landfill. So there were no trees. So if it were a bright, sunny, hot day in Dallas, which can easily happen, as you know, then there would be the issues with, well, there's no shade. So yeah, there were a lot of things going on there. Um, the accessibility, meaning there were always some folks who said, well, it's on the more disadvantaged side of town. You know, it's not quite as glamorous an area, you know, there too. So there are just a lot of things went together probably to say it, it was an uphill challenge from the beginning. Um, so change gears, you know, Pete Dye passed away last, uh, last week and we, uh, we talked at length about Pete in the first podcast about, 15 minutes or so about how you got, how you, how you met and how you, you got started because of seeing his course in, in high point, North Carolina. I was really interested to hear, you know, what it was like learning that design build methodology from Pete and, and the importance of it from him. Obviously that is one of his lasting legacies is bringing that style of, of construction back and, you, you guys, Tom Doak, and many other architects have, have really brought that where that has become a, a dominant style in, in architecture today. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, yes, Tom Doak, a lot of us, um, you know, are, are, it's our preferred way of, of going about creating a golf course, and that is there's a direct link. Um, I would say through Pete, going on back much further, mm -hmm. obviously. But in in Tom's and my case, particularly, uh, it was that personal uh, experience of seeing it done on the ground. Uh, that evolutionary process of starting with the concept and then refining that concept through the activities and the work on the ground, through you know through the process of building the course that. Uh, um, it's the it's the way certainly for me it's the it's the only way i would know how to do it and it was just given my basic i guess nature and inclinations and and the fact that it did work with pete and alice uh, uh it, was, it was a huge influence on not only the way we work but on my life yeah um and and obviously a lot of that was you getting to do work you know <clears throat> And while you were working, you know, it was, you were given almost a leash to do the work. And I imagine that's the case with your associates now. Um, something I've found interesting, having gotten to know some of, some of your associates is that, is that some of your associates come from like a non-golf background. What, 
what have you guys learned from, you know, having people that, you know, the advantages of having somebody that maybe comes from something, so a background outside of golf, that's not a huge golf nut when they, when they start working for you? Well, you know, Andy, I mean, even that you could, uh, I can personally link that back to Pete. I remember him saying, I asked him one time <laughs> many years ago, um, Mr. Dye, why don't you, why don't you have people, more people that work building your courses that are really actively involved in golf and and he was pretty definitive about he he said i don't want people to have to unlearn things you know i want them to to think the way we're thinking and do the way the concepts and things that we're doing not come with all these preconceived ideas because someone else did them differently i'd rather have somebody who's never done it at all and then train them from the beginning to, to work through it. In our case, it's more, Andy, I think you, you just get a sense of, of um, almost all these guys have worked at, at the, well, quite frankly, at the very bottom of some of our golf courses in the beginning, some starting as laborers and, and some equipment operators and, and things. But then watching them work, through the years and just realizing um, that these fellows each have extraordinarily, extraordinary, um, I would say, innate and learned talents uh, for what they do, particularly the ones, you know, that, that I think you're referring to most who are creating all the landforms, the shapes and the concepts that uh, that so characterize the courses and give them the identity. And uh, Jeff Bradley, you know, the bunker guru, as he's called by, or as Arnold Palmer, I guess, called him the bunker guru. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Jeff, Jeff's a prime example. You know, he, he worked on the maintenance crew at Hot Springs Country Club in Arkansas, and he was a laborer working on the maintenance crew and uh, when we did work back there in the early 90s and he ended up being sent over by the Rusty Mercer who's now the director of agronomy at Streamsong but Rusty was the superintendent at Hot Springs Country Club. Jeff worked for him and and Rusty sent him out to work with Dave Axland who's worked with us now for over 30 years and Dave was doing the bunkers at Hot Springs so Jeff just went out to help as a laborer and I remember Dave telling me toward the end of the job, he said, Bill, this guy can see it. He's got a feel for it. He can, he's just got it. He said, it's one of those almost indefinable things. Some people can see something and you can talk to them about it over and over and over. And yet when they attempt to do it, it just doesn't quite happen. And that's in all walks of life, all professions. Dave was convinced that Jeff Bradley, he said, He's, for whatever reason, he can see and visualize what we're trying to do. He said he's, he's, he's got it, and that intangible. And I remember distinctly, Dave left right toward the end of the job. I went back to walk through with Rusty right as the grow-in was being completed. And I remember looking at bunkers on the last couple of holes that were grassed, and I said something to uh, – uh, to Rusty Mercer, I said, Rusty, boy, Dave did a heck of a job on those bunkers. And Rusty looked at me and said, Bill, Dave didn't do those bunkers. 
I said, he didn't do those bunkers? Who did those? He goes, Jeff Bradley, the guy that's uh, work, been working with Dave. So that's one example. You, can, you could repeat something similar to that story for each one of the guys that works with us. They've come from different backgrounds. Some people say, what an eclectic group. Some people say, what a weird group of guys that all come together from such different backgrounds and still form this, this group of super talented uh, artistic people. It's, it's neat. I mean, and you think about it, it's, I think about this all the time as like how many people are like world class at something that they never have tried in life. Like, you know, how many people are like great singers that were always too shy to sing? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's just, you know, in, in all walks of life, it's just that, oh, it's, it's that coming together of preparation and, and, and opportunity and talent and um, you can have all the talent in the world. You can have all the talent plus preparation in the world. If the opportunity doesn't come, it doesn't happen. Or you can have not much talent or not much preparation, and you're given an opportunity, and not much comes of it. That's, that's good advice, good life advice. Yeah. It's, uh, so last question. you got to get out of here. And uh, we talked to Tom Doak uh, at length about the stream song project and one of you know one of the things he said is he if he if he could have one hole from the red course obviously you guys it was a very collaborative process with routing and then you were building the golf course at the same time which is pretty neat um if, if he could have one golf uh, hole from your golf course he would he would take the seventh is what he said if if you were able to just take and you you get 19 holes instead of 18 Take one, one, one hole off the blue course. Which one would it be, and why? Um, well, interestingly enough, when we laid those holes out, there are holes on our course that Tom visualized and routed on the ground, and there are holes on his course that I actually visualized and routed on the ground. So, do you want me to pick one of those or just what, any what, one? You, you, you know, nobody has to know, but you, yeah. you get to pick your hole. Oh, gee, can I have a moment? How long can I have to you take? Got, you got to leave in 10 minutes, so you got 10 yeah, minutes. Yeah, okay, I'll try not to take that long. I, I try to. Um, you know what? I, I think. I would take Tom's third hole. And I, I say that for two reasons. One is I, um, I saw that hole on the ground. If, if, if we had not been collaborating, um, you know, on the, on the two routings together, I think if, if Ben and I had just done 18 holes on that hole, you know, that whole site where the two courses are, that would have been one of the holes. Um, just found it to be an interesting uh, circumstance for golf and with its landforms. Uh, but having said that, I think they did a better job than probably what we would have. Because the, the detail work, the interest, particularly up near the green, and the 
in as well, the tee shot's fantastic, but the second shot I think is really, really good. And uh, uh, I used to kid Tom's guys because again we were working literally side by side out there. So once I'd walk over the hill, one of them would go, "You know, guys, I know it's on your course, but this is our hole. This is my hole." So don't mess this up. So with all that good-natured joking and stuff around. I, when I went back and looked at the third hole, it's pretty damn good. That competitive, you know, kind of ha, is that unlike any other project that you've ever done where you've built at the exact same time next to, you know, an, another group of uh, architecture team? Um, yes, we've worked, you know, building a course while they're building another course, maybe at the same project or something. Uh, we just did that at uh, Ozarks National yeah. there in Branson, Missouri. The Tiger Woods course has been going on while we were building our course. Um, but to to collaborate literally hand in hand on the on the site with holes that intermingle, uh, yeah, that's the only time we've done it. Um, it would be very difficult to do with most. I think people in our profession, the fact that we, Ben, I knew Tom for so long. We knew the guys, his guys knew our guys. We knew this was, you know, this was going to be, we knew it'd be interesting, but we felt like it was going to be fun. It turned out to be more fun than we, than we even imagined. Yeah, I have all these half-written articles, and right after the President's Cup <laughs> with Royal Melbourne, um, and I started the thinking about American venues that should host the Ryder or the President's Cup, mm -hmm. and I landed on the one that I was most intrigued by was uh, a composite course at Streamsong, <laughs> and I have like eight different routings for oh, it. Oh, that'd be interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and it was really fun to yeah. put together. It it, yeah. it it was really tough because if you went out, and I think these are the holes that you kind of had to create a little bit. But if you go out one through five or six, I always ended up having that central piece of ground be kind of where all the holes were housed hmm. um, yeah. on my favorite ones, but yeah. somebody else would have different favorites. Yeah. No, it is interesting. At Streamsong, it's, it's, it's uh, sort of like uh, places at Pinehurst. That, uh, if you're not careful, you could start playing on one course, and if you weren't pretty observant, you'd end up on the other course. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it could happen at Bandon, even at Tom's course and David Kidd's course there at number eight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Well, we're about to not do the same thing, but at Tarahiti, we're uh, Tom's going to do the, the second uh, public access course there and they're going to be building at the same time we're building ours so uh we're they don't intermingle but they they come so close together you could almost claim they touch that's uh, that's cool tom told me that uh because he got the ocean the first time you got the ocean oh tom he, he's, he's <laughs> unbelievable he he, he he, I, I don't know if I should say this publicly, but I, I will, Tom. So anyway, he, uh, I was talking to him on the phone, and he told me he, he wanted to go first with his course. And I said, why is that, Tom? I thought maybe we'd do these at the same time. He says, Bill, I think we, uh, we should go first. And I said, well, why? 
He said, because you took all the best land. <laughs> he said, so I got more of the inland land. You got more of the ocean land. He said, our course should open first. So then yours can come along after. <laughs> he's, he's working. He's, yeah, he's working. He's, he's constantly, <laughs> he's, he's never at rest when it comes to, to uh, analyzing and figuring out the best way to do things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much for your time. I, you know, you you gotta you gotta get out of here. So we look forward to our next talk. Hopefully, it won't be you know two or three years uh, apart. So. Yeah. Thank you, Andy. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you.